Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're talking today to Mike Alkin of Satcham Cove. They're a uranium specialist fund out of New York. We discussed the 232 outcome, the presidential working group, plus Cameco's recent call. We get into the supply and demand gap and why it's growing, plus he gives us his investment hacks. Mike, how are you, sir? Well, Matt, how are you? Not bad. So we, we, we spoke a while back, and, and in fact, I've uh, got you to thank. You've got me into this world of uranium, and we've been on a journey of discovery and learning, uh, talking to lots of uh, influencers, lots of CEOs, and uh, very exciting times right now. A lot to learn. A lot to learn. A lot to learn. It's, a, <laughs> it's way more complicated. It's way more complicated than any other commodity. It, it just doesn't work the same way. I think the, the right. mining component does, but the rules around it don't necessarily work the same way. That's what we yeah. discovered. And, and nuclear power and, and the, the end product, right? Nuclear power is complicated. It's controversial. Um, and so you really have to drill down in, into the many different layers of supply and demand. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. I think that's where we want to spend a bit of time with you today, because uh, it sure. seems to us our analysis um, is that this is a supply and demand story. Um, so let's spend a bit of time on that one. But first, let's get a few things out of the way, a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. Some things have happened since we last spoke. Obviously, we were waiting for the 232 announcement. Um, it's happened. Now we've got a presidential memo come out. So why don't we talk about that? So two, three, two expectation that you know the U.S. U.S. equities uh, companies, uranium companies, would benefit from some kind of quota. I think they nearly got there, but not quite. So why don't you just tell people about what happened there? Yeah. So if you listen to my podcast or, or wherever I've spoken, I always say two, three, two is noise. Yeah. And. Um, you know, so what, what was 232? Uh, the U.S. at one point during the peak of the Cold War was producing nearly all of its uranium consumption. And to fast forward to today, and the U.S. produces less than a million pounds of the 50 million a year. And I'm round, you know, ballpark numbers. It consumes. And um, and it, nuclear power in the U.S. is 20% of the electric grid. So it's, it's a very meaningful component. The U.S. is the largest consumer of uranium, the largest provider of nuclear power in the world. And the thought was uh, 232 is something that they were able to file a petition with the Department of Commerce, hoping that they would make recommendations to the president that on the grounds of national security, uh, he would import, he would uh, instill quotas on, or uh, quotas is what they asked for. Uh, essentially saying their, their view was the Russians, the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks, uh, former Soviet states and Russia, uh, controlled a reasonable amount of uranium coming into the US. And we know how the Russians have and do use uh, energy as a geopolitical weapon. And so their, their, their view was, please import quotas. We want 25% of all uranium board, bought from uh, nuclear power plants in the US to come from US miners to save the industry. Mm -hmm. And that was the view. Um, our, our view, as an American, yeah, do, do I want to be dependent on them? No. Can I see the argument? Yes. But what we've long maintained is it doesn't matter because if the miners would have held back and not filed a petition and looked at the big macro story, we think there's a deficit and we think that's only growing and the price they need to go into production to incentivize new production as their contract 
waterfall uh, contracts expire, the waterfall accelerates, they would have gotten their price. So, so the over the last 18 months, right? They filed it in January of 18. The Department of Commerce picked it up in July, I think it was, of 2018. And uh, it got ruled on July, uh, in April, the Department of Commerce recommended quotas, went to the president. The president said, yeah, we don't, we don't, I'm not sure it's a national security risk. Now, he then instituted a working group. He said, but we do have issues with the, the nuclear fuel cycle, the front end, let's take a look at what we can do. And that's 90 days sometime in October. So the market focused exclusively over the last 18 months on 232. Now, I learned a long time ago, I've been doing this a quarter of a century in investing, and I learned, took, took my lumps along the way, and, and, but you learn lessons. And I learned early on that, A, you don't want to rely on the government for something, and you know, B, when the government says, I'm here to help, you're like, oh my God. But, and also, as you can see, the growing groundswell of, well, it's a no-brainer. And you saw that in the U.S. stocks being bid up. And, and when you see something that's so certain, it starts to already get priced in. Uh, now, in December of 17, November, October of 2017, what you hadn't had in this market since really Fukushima was price discovery in the long-term market. And in the world of uranium, most of the transactions that are meaningful, the vast majority occur in the long-term market, five, seven, 10 years type of contracting. And spot has always been just a surplus disposal market or just a clearing mechanism, if you will. And because the miners during the last peak signed long-term contracts with the utilities at 80, 90, 100, $120, you know, much higher prices for long-term, they were covered by those contracts. But those contracts were starting to roll off. So for years post Fukushima, you did not have significant price discovery. And that's what markets need. In the, in the, you had contracting taking place, but not the sizable contracting taking place. That started to occur in the back half of 2017. And we saw that with some requests for proposals coming out from some of the bigger nuclear power plants. And then section 28232 uh, was filed in January of 18 and everything stopped. And the reason it stopped is the US is the major buyer of uranium. They didn't know from whom they were going to be mandated or required to buy their uranium from. So it put a pause on and price discovery. Now it did, you did see contracting taking place with other utilities around the world, but, but it, when the biggest one stops, most of them slow down and that's what you saw. So the big meaningful chunks of contracting you haven't seen. All 232 would have, if it were for 232, the fact that we think there's a deficit in the market would have come to the fore because miners can't sell uranium at 25 or 35, a few can, right? Uh, 100 million pounds a year, roughly 100, 110, 105, that, that can be sold. That doesn't solve your 200 million plus pounds of demand and growing one and a half percent a year. So, and, and secondary supply can't fill that gap. So price discovery occurs when two people are sitting on, on either side of the table negotiating a price and at a much higher price. And that was on pause for 18 months. Right, so I mean, let's, let's talk about some of those things and maybe lift, lift the carpet up, up, up a bit on some of the things that happened there. Obviously, the, the two companies, which is Energy, Energy Fuels and Your Energy, they thought, well, let me ask you, do you think it was a tactical commercial decision for themselves, looking after themselves? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, 
Or do you think that they were actually trying to do something for the benefit of all the U.S. uranium businesses? I mean, forget the argument, you know, security or whatever, you know, you, you either for it or against it. It doesn't matter now. You know, it never mattered really. But do you think it was a smart move? Something, you know, all the, the shares have been hit. They've kind of, kind, of, kind of paid the price a little bit right now. But is it something that they should have done or could they have done it another way? You know, it's interesting. My they're bright guys, right? Sure. Um, I think that you saw an industry that's been pretty much brought to its knees in the US. And if you look at the data, almost all of the purchases over 95% come from outside the US. Hmm. And so, you know, their as their contracts start to roll off, they start to get nervous because it, that'd been a trend that'd been continuing. So I think they were trying to and, and, and they're the price they need is higher than some of the rest of the world. Not not all, but I think they were getting nervous. And I think they said, as a matter of survival, we need to get some assistance here. We need to get some help. And if, they're, if the utilities don't view 35, 40, 50%, depending on the year, Russian, Kazakh, and Uzbek uranium as a threat to, to their security, well, let, let's force the, their hand. Um, I do think had they stepped out of that and not filed the 232, um, that price discovery would have occurred. And where they need to be, contracts would be signed. Um, yeah. And, and, but, but it took on a life of its own. And it, but all the while, inventories were being drawn down, uh, purchasing was being delayed, and here we are. So now the market, now the market, Matt says, oh my God, because it was a matter of their survival, let's shoot them all, the US names. You know, some of these were down 30, 40, 50%. And at the end of the day, you know, our view is that there is a meaningful supply deficit that the rest of the market doesn't really appreciate. And that's fine, that's what makes markets. And at in the next round of price discovery or this round of price discovery, a contracting cycle as unfilled requirements keep accelerating, that will come to the fore. And those who can produce in a reasonable period of time that have been a reliable supplier or can bring production online and uh, provide utilities with security of supply will be okay. We've had a lot of people say, well, 232 isn't dead. And a lot of people say it is. Where, where do you sit on that? Uh, so they have a working group, a 90-day working group, and it's a lot of the cabinet members. Uh, will they, the cabinet members themselves, be included in this I, and, and involved? Mm, who knows? Um, you know, what I can say is uh, I think from our, you know, uh, time, we were uh, a resource in part for the Department of Commerce while they were doing their investigation, just educating uh, basic stuff, you know, having, having no idea which way they were leaning one way or the other. But just uh, they they reached out to us on a few occasions, and we were happy to share our insights in the in the nuclear market and the uranium market. Um, was was sorry? Was that when was that precisely? Because I know there was an initiative from June two thousand seventeen, which was I don't know what was happening there. But when were you involved with the uh, twenty nineteen? Okay, okay. Just answering you know just questions on general the uranium and nuclear power market. Okay. Um, just filling in blanks and stuff like that right um but no idea which way they were leaning one way or the other um uh but what you 
so, so the recommendations came and but point is they, they were thoughtful and, and working hard to understand the market and they had nine months to do that. And it was, um, it was certainly, uh, and as watching uh, a government entity really peel the onion back said, okay, they're trying to get their head around this. Now, where that goes, who knows? You know, you got to remember this is the nuclear power lobby is significantly greater than the uranium mining lobby, yeah. which has supplied 400 jobs versus hundreds of thousands of jobs. Well, we, we looked uh, at the spend of the nuclear lobbyists versus uranium lobbyists. Mammoth, I mean, it's mammoth. phenomenal. Now, now, interestingly, right, and I have always contended and I will continue to contend that the if you look at the feedstock cost, uranium, as a percentage of the operating cost of a nuclear power plant, it is de minimis versus the other choices such as coal and natural gas. For instance, the if we look at 2018 in the United States at $32, $31, $32 per megawatt hour to operate one of these plants, a little less than six was fuel. But that fuel is uranium conversion enrichment fabric. It's a fuel cycle. So a much smaller portion of that, less than half of that is uranium versus 75 to 85% of the feedstock to operate a coal or a power plant. Is that affected by, when you're building a reactor, there's a lot more regulation, control, safety, you know, concerns than a regular power station, like say, say coal, for instance, right? Because you, you feed the coal and you burn it, you get in. It's a much simpler process. So clearly a reactor is going to cost a, a whole bunch more, which is, you know, like, you know, and we'll get onto it a bit when we're talking about demand side, but that also feeds into it. But, um, so there's a lot of variables around the, the, these percentages, et cetera. But the, the thing I want to ask you, though, with regards to that is where, where do you sit in this argument as to it may be a de minimis amount, but as a percentage of U.S. reactors margins, it's significant. You know, that some of them or a lot of them are getting subsidies, apparently, um, and, uh, you know, a lot more will need subsidies to c continue to, you know, exist. So where do you where do you sit in this argument? Because, again, we see two camps. It's like it, it's de minimis, but putting the doubling the price is going to have an impact. Or so let's take not. aside my so so right so you have reactors in the U.S. that don't make money right you have you have merchant markets you have regulated markets right where one gets a rate increase by going to a public utility commission one is in the open market and it's about half and half about the reactor counts so does low natural gas hurt them yes does do subsidized wind and solar hurt them yes it actually is something and I don't know I have no idea but I it. As part of this working group, I would think that policy can be on the table with respect to subsidized wind and solar. That wouldn't surprise me. But don't forget, in the U.S., the states, you know, the, it's doom and gloom in the U.S. is 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 convention. But we've seen Illinois just just a few weeks ago, Ohio, yeah. uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, all giving relief. So these numbers that are out there for the number of reactors that are really under struggle, yes, are some struggling? Absolutely. But the states are coming in and recognizing nuclear's role in this, yeah. because what do you have to replace it? Yeah. So, you know, we think the doom and gloom scenario, people attached to this recency bias. But what's happening is constant support. You're seeing now uh, in the last couple of days, there was led bipartisan legislation introduced to extend licenses. And, and there's a growing groundswell of support for nuclear power around the world, but also in the U.S., which is the largest 
consumer of nuclear power, uh, but an industry that really, you know, over the bear market, it's very easy to say, oh, it's dying. But there's relief along the way. So again, like just to finish off on this kind of housekeeping bit, you know, the, the, so the working group has been put together. I, it, to me, having read the presidential memo, quite vague, quite unclear. Um, to other people, it's it's you know they seem to be able to read a lot into it, which which you know I, my hat off to them. Um, but it seems to be focused around nuclear fuel protection, which covers a lot of things because as you say the, the nuclear cycle it does involve uranium it involves a lot of other things it also involves utilities who have other vested interests in, which may be gas and yeah. maybe coal maybe renewables yeah. well, wind solar etc um so there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts in 90 days what's going to happen so let, let's I, I just want to continue on a thought and in, in sure, talking please. about the challenges for the nuclear plants so um in, in the lead up to 232, uh, we went through uh, so six quarters, 10, probably 50 or 60 conference call transcripts, earnings calls of electric utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you're an electric utility, is a great risk of, of the material cost of this uranium. Uh, you would think that it would be a paramount question that would be asked on a conference call and brought up a lot by the electric utilities. Mm -hmm. This is if, if regulation is going to make it more challenging for you, a CEO of a public company is gonna say, it may not be my fault, right? That's kind of how that works. Um, if they don't have to do a mea culpa because it wasn't their fault. We couldn't find a conference call where an analyst asked a question about section 232. And then you go through the public filings and you saw one company mention 232 in a couple of sentences. The day that the trans, the day that the ruling came out that there is no, uh, there are no quotas, the stocks of electric utilities didn't budge. So, how critical is it? Are there reactors? Yes. Is it part of a grander scheme of a portfolio of assets that they have that deliver? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are they going to jump up and down and absolutely say it's critical that this doesn't happen? That's their job. Yes. But that's that's interesting to me because. It, I don't know who the analysts are. I don't know who they are. Um, they're not what their focus is. They're not retail junior mining investors. Okay, so there, there you go. And they're, you know, they're, they're investors who focus on cash flow, and they're professional investors. Well, there you go. Because I think you know you have I think on many occasions, and I think it's been accepted in the market. There's not a lot of re, uh, retail, no, sorry, a lot of analyst coverage with regards to uranium. Right. Really, well, probably not even nuclear in a way because it's not a very big market. Uranium is a small market; it's ten, what, ten billion bucks, something like that. It's that's a, just a well, lot. Publicly a large... traded market cap is ten billion, eight billion of which is two companies. Right there, you go. So, so back to my question: What do you what do you think ninety days is going to spit out? I mean, speculation, you know, for for fun. What, Good, do, as, what do we as, think? As Mike Young, I think Mike Young from Vimy. I think I saw a tweet from him. And Mike's a funny guy. I yeah. think he said good and gooder. Yes, um, he did. Is, is outcome. I don't disagree. Right. Uh, I can't see a scenario where, so, so what happens? Nothing happens. They do nothing. Okay. Well, it is where it is and gets back to business. No price increases. Price discovery occurs. And uh, if our work is right and we think there's a deficit, there we go. Right. Uh, if there is some relief because they're looking at the in, uh, supposedly looking at the whole front end of the fuel cycle 
And if they're looking at the front end of the fuel cycle, what you will see is um, that there is conversion and enrichment, and they need to understand that. The U.S. doesn't own its, its own enrichment to commercially enrich. Um, is that a, a, a surefire cure right away for uranium miners that have? Not really, but it's probably, my guess is, there's probably, a, 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 this has raised awareness as to the importance of nuclear power and how can we help the nuclear power plants. And if you help the nuclear power plants, you're probably by extension gonna help the global uranium industry because you see less reactors closing, right? And by the way, part of the thing that about this, because you mentioned there's very, it's a very small industry, very small market cap, not a lot of people looking at it. So what winds up happening, Matt, is people look and take a mosaic of information. Oh, the US is in a tough nuclear power situation. That populates their thinking. Well, if you're modeling this out, you better take a number of those reactors out. So you have to come to a number. It's part of a mosaic. And it comes that you see this all the time in this sector because there's so few institutional eyeballs on it. And the sell side, with the exception of a couple, maybe a few, but I'll say a couple, are modeling industry organizational numbers and forecasts that are out there, which we don't put much weight on. Right. Okay. We've seen a lot of people, you know, feeding back to us, like, like hundreds and hundreds, of, if not thousands of comments. And you kind of go through those and it's investing is a curious beast, you know, uh, certainly for the retail and high net worth family office. Okay. And that this, this kind of, I want to talk about some investment hacks, we'll call them. Okay. Which is, you know, what do you look for generally? when you're investing what should you be looking for and, like, and we're not going to talk about companies specifically i don't want to talk about specific companies but just generally um because it's a very emotional thing there's money involved and money creates emotion and it's your money right and as a retail investor um you come at it very emotionally compared to institutional such as yourself where it's you know slightly colder more rational um, you know, analysis of a situation because it's two different sets of emotional states. So we've noticed in the feedback that people, we, we, we've put out some information and people look at it and you probably find the same. People look at it and depending, if, if you've invested in that stock, you'll interpret it one way and someone who's not in that stock and maybe in another stock, they interpret exactly the same information in entirely different way. So the same data, two different outcomes. And it's 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 interesting to sort of see that coming through every single day. And you know, I don't know if you you you've seen that and or observed that and on I, I observe it. Um, you know, I I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I I realized throughout the years that the, the math usually doesn't lie. Uh, the math is not more complicated than fourth grade math and maybe a drop of algebra, you plug a number in here or there, yeah. but it, the math is the math. Yeah. And what tends to happen is people are headline driven and price action driven. Hmm. And I just don't care about short-term price action. Uh, and short-term doesn't mean today. It means I don't, it's it, for, for us, for me, for Sage and Cove, it's about risk reward. What's much of my potential upside versus my potential downside? And to do that, you can't calculate that 
unless you look at it on a company by company basis. And in this case, the macro uranium, and you right. have to understand primary supply, secondary supply, inventory levels, yeah. unfulfilled yeah. contract needs. You, if you don't have that, I can understand why it's easy to be to, to be scared yeah. uh, because you need headlines. And and there's a I always say this and I, I hate even hearing myself say because I sound repetitive, but recency bias is an enormous driver of people's uh, uh, actions when it comes to investing. The, the most, and, and it's also when it comes to sell-side analysts, institutional sell, you know, sell-side analysts that are writing research, it, there's, there's comforting crowds. And when the market is down, people attach themselves to the most recent environment. Mm -hmm. Because if you, were, if you go outside of that, now you're alone. You're on an island. And, and, and a lot of people aren't comfortable there. No, of course not. You know, but I'm just going to find, I've come from an institutional background, right? So I, I, I look at this slightly colder than perhaps, you know, some friends of mine might, might, might do. And I find if you don't, you, you will go mad because the, the, the thought of day, day trading to me is, is, is difficult um, <clears throat> because the, you know, say information changes on a daily basis and are you expected to change your thesis on a daily basis? I think that that doesn't really work. But you know, it, it, everyone's different. Everyone has their own own thing. Uh, some companies are better than others. I'm not going to talk about specific companies, just in general gen, generalities, because I imagine Satchum Cove hasn't just placed a million dollar bet on each and every single utility, uh, sorry, a uranium company out there. Okay, you don't think like that. No one should. So let's come back to a little bit of micro help people. The fundamentals of mining don't change, right? But what are the sorts of things that you look for in companies? Are you a management guy, an asset guy, jurisdiction guy? What are, what are the things that you look for? Generally? I'm a short seller by nature. Mm -hmm. That's my vocation for many years. And I still think like a short seller. Mm -hmm. um, which um, so I'm a I'm a bullshit guy. I look for bullshit. I look okay. for blowhard. I look for blowhard management teams. Right. And um, I look for bullshit management teams. And we do our work. We do our analysis uh, on on a, the macro. We do our analysis on the company, hmm. and then we speak to companies. We have, you know we speak to them, and we're good note takers. And then we speak to them again, and we ask them the same questions. And if you were a management team and you were on the other side of a call with us, you'd think, didn't these guys hear me last time? And then we'd talk to you again and we're going to ask you the same question. And we want to see if you remembered how you answered it. And that's important to us. Uh, from a project standpoint, we talk to consultants, we talk to engineers, we talk to geologists. We're none of the above. Um, so we, you know, there's a, there's a, it's, it's art, right? There's a bullshit detector. It, the mining industry, I have on my computer desk, I'm, I'm, I'm not in that room right now, but I have on my desk, uh, a mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing next to it, Mark Twain, yeah. right? And I always, I always remember that. And they're in the business of raising capital to explore, develop, and do whatever. Are all of them full of shit? Absolutely not. Are many? Probably. So you have to determine that. I don't say who I think it is and that. That's not my place to say that. Um, so... You know, do companies go out and acquire during a bear market? What do they need to do to survive? There's no revenue. What do they do? They need to raise capital. 
Mm-hmm. So what do they do? They need to make those glossy presentations make us look as good as they can. So what do they do? They lower the costs a little bit. We'll talk about the pounds that they have. And then what else do they do? They go acquire companies by issuing stock and they play the pound in the ground game, right? Look how many pounds we have. And the enterprise value divided by pound makes us look cheap. And they diluted shareholders. Mm. Now, it doesn't always mean we can't take a broad brush. Every company's different. You have to know what you're looking for. So, yeah, management's important, very much so, especially in the mining space. Um, geography, yes. Now, some people have rules of thumb for how they think geographically. Uh, you know, we think geographically. Obviously, the jurisdiction has to be good. It has to be a very good mining jurisdiction. Uh, you, uh, the rule of law apply. But but what, what role does uranium mining play to the economics of that government is also an important question to ask. What's the history been? How long have they been mining there? Has there been any interruptions? What's What's been that challenge? And it requires questions and reading. Um, you know, and then you need to think about where does the cycle play out, right? So for the last 18 months since 232, it's become a US focused uranium mining store uh, in, in the global landscape. It, why? The US is insignificant in the terms of the global landscape. So you have to ask yourself, how does this cycle play out? Who are the, who are the buyers of these assets? Well, I could think of the Russians, I could think of the Chinese. Why? Because they're both building like crazy. The Russians are building reactors around the world. The Chinese are not only building them like gangbusters internally, but they have plans to build along the Belt and Road Initiative for others. Who else is dependent now? Who's growing nuclear power? India. Who else is growing it? The Middle East. Well, what do all of those have in common? Where can they probably not come in and buy a majority-owned stake of a company? Probably not the U.S., right? Can they buy minority stakes in Canadian companies? Yep, they, we've seen that. But where do they get big pounds fast? Right? Africa is not a bad place, right? So, and and have they been mining now? Have they been mining uh, uh, uranium there for for decades? Yes. Right. So you have to look about what parts of Africa, where what what the project is. But so we don't take that broad brush approach. But the other thing we don't do is we don't bet the ranch on one or two stocks. Right. So uh, and and that's and so from a from you ask about investment hacks. Right. Um, we're we're going to uh, if a uh, little insight. Right. Uh, whether it may whether we're right or not, who knows uh, if, if we have a huge feeling about something and we're really comfortable with it. Is it going to be a 15% position? Yeah. Okay. Could it be 20? Mm. Right now, if, it, if the cycle works and it grows, then it's portfolio management and how to manage that size position. But do we go out and put 50% in one position? Absolutely not. Uh, now, I, from what I gather on Twitter, just from reading stuff, some people got really hurt in the US in this past stuff, in this past downturn. Um, and, I, and I feel terrible for people if that happened to them, but they need to understand in any, uh, you have compassion for people, but you don't bet the ranch on something. There's different geographies, there's different stages, right? Because you have production, near-term production, exploration and development. What, where, who, who's going to go, what's the market going to pay for? Are they going to pay for pounds that can be produced right away? And at what stage will the market pay for that? Right. That's an important thing, right? Well. well People ask me all the time, um, how come you're a short seller? How come you don't short anything in uranium? Because sometimes in the cycle turns, the shittiest companies are going to rip your face off because people are going to dream a dream that they're not dreaming in a bear market. Mm-hmm. So I think people need to to have a little bit of a diversification um, and they have to understand at what stage 
and what type of company they want to own. Okay, so that's, that, that's been brilliant. Okay, because I, I think a lot of the, the rules of general investing and investing in mining apply there. Uranium mining, it, it, they're, they're mm -hmm. the same thing. Sure. It's bl blended approach um, and you've got to understand what, you, what, what you're getting into. The, the things that stood out for me there, though, were your desire to talk to the management team and then talk to the management team and then talk to them again smart i think that's really 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 smart um and then the other the, fi the final piece of that was where does that company sit in the in for uranium specifically where, where do they sit in the you know geographic picture that we've been painting where can they operate where can they operate um successfully you know permits licensing and all of that but where can they sell into as well what, what's 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 their market you know, or who's the end? Yeah, in mining companies, you know, in these big cycles, they the good ones get taken out, right? Yeah. And and who's the buyer of that asset? Yeah. Um, you know, you've seen over the years, going back 40, 50 years, the utilities were involved trying to vertically integrate at one point. Then it was oil and gas companies. When you look yeah. at we look at libraries in the 70s and 80s, they were they have a ton of them. And then that kind of gave way. Now, what role do the big mining companies have right now in it? Do they have an appetite for uranium? Eh, not really. Um, now, right? It's a it's it's a leopard, and it's so small for them. Mm. So, who are the buyers of these assets? And people then tend to look at at projects and say, "Well, that's a that's a third quartile produ producer, and uh, they'll never get in." You don't a buyer of an asset that needs uranium and can't buy elsewhere, and 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 it might be a state-owned entity doesn't care what they're paying to produce that. The, the Husab mine in, in in Namibia is a great example, owned by the Chinese. Uh, produces nowhere near nameplate capacity. Costs have range anywhere fifty to seventy-five plus dollars a pound. They don't care. They need the uranium. Do you, Do you think that? I mean, you've been in uranium guy for what two and a half, three years? I mean, how, how long have you been? Uh, I think April of seventeen. I, I said I see a bull market emerging, right, so and that was pre Section two thirty two. And at the time, what I was saying was, production cuts have to come. There's an issue out there with Russia. You got to look at that. The U.S. has to figure something out, uh, and and a host of things. Two thirty-two came and created. You need price discovery and production cuts, and 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 that's what we're seeing. Nothing's changed since then, except you had price discovery put on the shelf while Section two thirty-two came eight months later. Right. Okay. So, it, well, I, I think a lot's happened for you since then. You, well, you must well have a lot's changed. It's it, it, to be much further supported than it was. Right. So you yes. you. you yeah, you must further down down the line, as oh, it were. Your, your thesis still holds true. Unquestionably, things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's stronger than I would have thought. Okay, when I modeled it. So let's come on to the. We'll start with demand. Because demand is a nice easy one. It's it's obvious. There's billions of dollars being spent building reactors all around the world, by lots of countries. So those countries are buyer of nuclear as a solution. Okay. It's a question of how much, not not if. It's you know how much uranium is going to be required, right? Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, yeah. And okay. if you want to think, um, if you want to, let's cycles, peaks and troughs. In two thousand four ish, when the cycle went from ten bucks to one hundred and thirty seven, mm. <laughs> um, or in by two thousand and seven, and I don't believe it gets back there. But again, that's human emotion that drove it there. But 
but can it people always ask me where it goes I, I don't care where it goes I know where it needs to go sure where it needs to go to incent production right is is 55 60 the rest is gravy um, and that's where everyone all of a sudden at 50 is sitting out and you're sitting at the pub having a pint and everyone's saying you know we've been doing work on nuclear power and uranium right and, and they've already had a 5x move or a 4x or 3x but Back then, there were 24 reactors under construction. At that time, 24. Today, there's 54. And you're breaking ground on new ones. I, I, keep, have, yeah. I keep asking people whether or not there are controls in the market. And I, and I, don't, I don't mean geopolitical, you know, Kazakhs versus Kamiko, or Russia versus US. I just mean, we learned a lot in the last cycle. It, it went up and it, and it, it shot down. It, Black Swan event, admittedly, kind of was, was the cause of that. But do you, do you think that uh, what was the what was the what was the Black Swan? Well, the, I'm talking about I'm putting back in the last cycle with Fukushima, you know, happened. Oh yeah, happening, you're right? talking a lot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. back the last well, cycle, right? I, I thought you meant the pricing, the pricing of the uranium cycle, because it had Sorry. peaked at one thirty-seven or seven. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, there's a question. You know, do you think one thirty-seven is a fair reflection of the market back then? No. No, okay. uh, you got to remember back then what you started to see was, uh, again, it's a very tight physical market, right? And you had uh, 0203, it's, it's 1095. Uh, actually, uh, good piece to see. Um, UXC, one of the industry consultants on their website, has some free information that they put out right. as samples of prior work. Right. And in 2007, I think it was their April 16th piece, they put out a piece and I actually had it somewhere. It was free, and I um, mm -hmm. we're a subscriber to their services and pay a lot of money for it. But that's free. But, and I, this, well, this was a sample of their free work, April sixteenth, two thousand seven, and they went back and did a uh, survey at the time. They talked in their April piece um, of two thousand seven that in two thousand and three the price of uranium was about ten fifty, ten ninety five, and there were some unfulfilled contract requirements mm -hmm. on the part of U.S. utilities. Mm -hmm. Looking forward in two thousand and six, so three years forward. And they went around and they asked, and I think I'll, I'll have it, I'll read it to you. It says, in June of 03, and again, it's free. I'm not breaching any copyrights. It's on their website. Uh, we were alarmed by the fact that uncovered requirements on the part of U.S. utilities were so large in 06, just three years away. There seemed to be an impasse or perhaps a disinterest in contracting, which translated into this large uncovered position. Now, that was about three years forward. It was about, uh, let's give you a little context, three years forward was about 30 million pounds of uncovered unfulfilled ah, today it's, i see what you did today there. it's a little little bit below that and no i'm not giving this out to anyone do your analysis <laughs> um but but uh it, it's it's a few million pounds less right. uh, but but the point they did a survey in their mid-year mid price survey and uh, the survey showed that most of the respondents believed that spot uranium price would be in the 11 to 1150 range at the end of 03 and between 13 and $16 by 08, mm -hmm. the vast majority of buyers bid for a 2006 purchase three years forward, um, 1150 to $12 in that price survey. That was $100 below where it finished. Right. It was over $110 in 06. So you look at today, you say, well, the unfilled requirements are similar. And people will say, well, you know what? There was more inventory, back, less inventory back then. In 0304 time period, you probably had 55 or 60 million in US. I'm talking mm -hmm. 60 million 
uh, and you counted the suppliers and you add the suppliers in, all in, you probably have about 95-ish, 96 million pounds. Today, if you count the utilities at the end of 18, they had 111 million pounds and they're working off throughout the year, we're half a year through, but the suppliers have a lot less. So all in the suppliers and the utilities uh, have about 130 million pounds versus 95, 96 back then. Now that's less than a year. Uh, and if you look at what the utilities have at 111 million pounds, it's a little over two years of uranium in the US right now, which is uh, uh, right in historically where they'll buy. But, what, but there's a very big difference. So back in 2003, four timeframe, you had 24 reactors under construction. Today, 55, 56. Why does that matter? A, on a new fuel load, a reactor, when they initially load it, consumes three times the amount of uranium. Back in the last cycle, from 1993 to 2013, there was a program called, technically, officially called HEU to LEU, highly enriched uranium to LEU, otherwise known as megatons to megawatts, where the Russia, where the Americans were concerned after the wall fell that the Russians would be de-weaponizing nuclear weapons or just selling, or not even de-weaponized, just selling them out to the, to the black market because they were broke. So they, they incented them to downblend thousands of intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles, and take that highly enriched uranium and it would be consumed in the US. That was about as much as 20 million pounds a year. That doesn't exist right now. There were also a fuel buyer in 03 would look forward and see that Cigar Lake was coming online in, in the 07 time period, 18, 18 million pounds a year. So they looked forward and at the time, they had a uh, never-ending supply of HEU to LEU at 20 million pounds a year. You had a big mammoth mine coming online. You had much less reactors, right? And you still were in a pretty reasonable surplus. And they were forecasting deficits in 06, 07. Today, you've had a 20% cut to supply. Demand is accelerating very rapidly because of these new reactor construction starts. Since the last really forecasting period of, of, let's say, the World Nuclear Association or others, you've seen the French come out and say, you know what, we're not taking those 14 reactors offline in 2025, it's a 2035 thing. Mm -hmm. India's accelerated, China's accelerated, the U.S. has had relief. But yet, the unfilled requirements that were concerning people back in 03 are about here now. And the inventory levels don't wash, meaning it's, it's de minimis. Um, that's the setup you have. And it's math. It is, it is math. I, I absolutely agree with that. So, so I, th I think the timing for demand is more obvious. It's easy to see. You, you, you look at how many reactors there are, how many are being built, how many are going to be built, and the sort of general mood in the marketplace allows you to put a number on that, right? The supply side, way more complicated. The timing is not obvious. You know, I think some people saying, well, this, this thing could go on another 12 months. This uncertainty could go on another 12 months because someone's got to blink first. Someone's got to go on this price, right? So, and the issues being, as I, as I understand them, is you've got production which has stopped. You, if you want to restart it, it takes a while to kind of get things back up there, but they, no one's going to do that unless it's at the right price. And even then, it's a question of, we'll pick that price. It's not just a question of, we can cover our costs. You need to make some margin, in which case, how much margin, right? 
Then you've got existing uh, explorers, developers who are at various stages of development, who therefore are, you know, anywhere between five and ten years out from being able to produce. And then you've got any new entrants into the market who may come along, which you know that's a you know potential ten-year, you know, cycle there. So the supply side may not be able to catch up with the demand side. I mean, is that again fair to say? That's our bet that's by a meaningful bet. amount. Yeah, but, and, but, but there's so, the math. There's the math conundrum, right? Yeah, I mean, again, we don't give out our full numbers, but if you want to talk in generalities, what, what you see a lot in this market is that pieces of a mosaic become the entire narrative, right? We talked mm -hmm. earlier about the U.S. One of the things I hear often is, well, the Kazakhs can sell all they want at $35, at $30, at $25. So, right, because Kazakhs, 41% of the Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan Prom is half of that. But you have to put everything into a mathematical context, right? What can be, what is at the all-in sustaining cost of below twenty dollars, mm. right? And people look only at the all-in sustaining cost. You have to understand how that sausage is made because other people report it all over the place. But then they forget that. Then, then you have to just say, okay, now let's go beyond the mine all-in sustaining cost. What, what is the G&A to support that mine at the corporate level? What is the interest expense to support that debt that they have? Are there any obligations that they need uh, from a dividend perspective? And I'm not just talking about, I'm talking in general. Um, how much of that project requires further exploration cost? And so what people do is they look at a cost and say, okay, that's the cost, throw a little bit of margin on there and that's it. That's not how it works. Right, there are other costs associated with it that increase that cost. But even if you assume that's how it work, worked, put it in buckets. What's below twenty dollars per pound all in sustaining cost? Last year was about sixty-six million pounds produced. They could produce probably about eighty-five million pounds. Now let's go in your twenty thirty bucket. Right now you're you're getting into the twenty-ish uh, uh, twenty-five million pounds ballpark. Right. So, but now that's not incentive price. That's all in sustaining cost. That doesn't include GNA. It doesn't include an interest expense. It doesn't include all the other expenses associated with it. Yeah. Where, where can that where can that get sold? Yeah, it probably gets sold in a $28, $30 range. Okay, so now what? You have 110, 115, 120 million pounds. Hmm. You've got demand of over 200 million pounds and growing every year. Hmm. Now you have secondary supplies that then then you get into what's in the 30 to 40, uh, $30 co uh, cost, 30 plus to $40 cost. Right now, you're starting to get into the uh, uh, some of the bigger mines, but yeah. then in that category, you have other mines that are expiring. You have other mines that are that are aged. Yeah. You have further exploration costs that are get done. Now, you, so you start to look at, and people could do the work, right? We're not going to lay it out for them, but but now you start to get into. Are you starting to get into the 150 range, 140 range? Uh, but but that's the cost, right? So when we look at this, we say, okay. Well, the spot price of 25 and the long-term contracting price are simply unsustainable. And that long-term contracting price hmm. is not where deals are being struck today. It, there's a methodology to that by one by, by a reporting organization that if deals are being struck with a four-handle, but there's a potential bid out there for with a three-handle, at that's where it stays, right? So Cameco didn't add 25 million pounds in the first quarter and a little bit more in the second quarter to their order book at, at, at today at long-term prices. That's not why they shut MacArthur River. See, they the, shut MacArthur River. 
And those are off market. Those aren't publicly, those aren't requests for proposals. Those are off market negotiations, meaning utility calls supplier. Supplier, they go back and forth. See, this is why it's complicated for retail investors and perhaps why they need to listen to people like yourselves um, who have done the work because it's hard to get information. You, you, you can get that information. You can pay for the reports. You can construct models well, and you, you know. Well, yeah, we construct our own models and use the reports we buy Yeah, as to, to benchmark and see it's the assumptions that go into our reports. Yeah. And, and a lot of the sell side reports are just replications of those models because there are very few uranium mining analysts on the sell side. They're covering other other things. Well, again, that, that's what I'm saying. You know, this this interview, this 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 video that people are watching, it's for people who perhaps you know aren't so sophisticated in terms of investing uh, or knowledgeable about uranium specifically. This is to give them a sort of paint a big picture as to what's been going on and what it's and project out and say you know what, what what's the world look like. So that's why it's important to understand the demand side is a you know big tick as far as companies like your funds like yourself are concerned and the supply side it's it's a question of timing it's not a question of if so it's a question of price discovery there you go right all right if you if you don't mind mike can we just spend a little bit of time just talking about the price um well the inelastic nature of price in this commodity because it's unlike any other that i've seen Utility buyers will pay what they need to pay when they need uranium. Mm. Um, a fuel buyer will not get fired if he pays $10 or 50 or 80 or 100. He will get fired, or she, I don't mean to, to be gender specific, but he or she will get fired if they don't have fabricated fuel rods ready to go into those reactors. Now, the, the incentives of fuel buyers are not to, to be heroes. They are to buy, pay what their peers are paying. And so a fuel buyer doesn't get fired because he paid 80 bucks. He does get fired if he doesn't have fuel. And so that security of supply, there is no substitute, right? There's nothing to substitute that. And when you start to get into issues now where uh, there, there's a demand picture and a supply picture and supply has been cut dramatically, um, and, and the projects that are on care and maintenance require much higher pricing to come online. Mm. And even then it doesn't fill the gap. That means new projects need to come online. New projects have many of them have been put on the shelf. Many of them require prices, most of them, almost all of them with a five handle. The bigger ones that are out there that, re, that have many big pounds at lower, that could come in, let's say uh, there's only a couple of them at lower pounds. Those are years in the future. It's a two-year fuel cycle. From the time you order to the time you're going to get it, it's a couple of years. So now people say, well, my God, there's inventories out there. And there's numbers between 1.4 to 1.8. We're in the, in the middle, <clears throat> um, a little towards the lower end of that uh, range. But what you see is when you do those inventories, there's, there's government stockpiles, there's, uh, there's many types of inventories. And what you have to look at how much can I access when I really need it? And, and, and we think that's somewhere 50, 60 million pounds, maybe a little bit more, a little bit. Uh, uh, I saw Tribeca recently said 75 million. It's, it, it's, 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 you know, we're, we're talking a quarter of a year, 
of supply and the utilities globally, when you back out China from those equations, have two and a quarter years, you're all at historical levels. So now where does that new production that's required, where does that production come from? It comes from new mines. And they need, <clears throat> these are, some of them are, are over a billion dollars. In, in, a, in a bear market, nobody is financing those mines to get built. So you need prices to go higher. So, but what's going to start it? What's going to get it? I know there's a need, but so, there's going to be a but, moment. But, but, so so if, if I did you with, with some prospective investors, right, I'll show them a uh, screen share. I'll show them our model. It goes on forever. Now it's up to 22 tabs. And it's got everything you could possibly think of. And you'll have that discussion. And at the end, sometimes somebody will say, and you'll show them the deficits that we have. Um, and a couple of my, my friends who are other fund managers that, that I'm comfortable with sharing some work. Uh, and then they'll say, um, so what starts it, right? Price discovery starts it. Section 232 was not made up. It caused the largest pool of fuel buyers in the world to step aside. It caused a, a, a cascading effect from that. There was some contracting being done, mm. and some and people will look and say, "Well, somebody's selling pricing at thirty-two dollars. So what? Who cares?" Now you do need more of those to get done off market with a four-handle, so the price reporters can't point to that thirty-two and say, "Well, some got done at thirty-two. You need more of those, and those are if you're in the fuel cycle, you know those discussions are occurring. When that changes overnight, psyche changes overnight. But during 232, those discussions by the people that matter weren't happening. Because if I'm a fuel buyer, the other thing, people think 232 came on a whatever day it was, on a Monday, officially, I think. On Tuesday, we're going to see the spot price of uranium go parabolic. That's so nonsensical and so not how it works and so unrealistic. For sure, for sure. But, you know, I, I, I like, you know, the human psyche does come into it. You know, there were people just looking. It comes back to that invest, emotional investment uh, psyche where you need something to be true. You want it to be true, but you need it to be true to justify your decision making, right? And there's been a lot of catalyst moments put up. 232 is one. I think some people put the working group up as a catalyst moment. And um, that, that's, 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 it's, un, it, it's um, whether they're there, to, but the 232 came two weeks ago. It cleared, right? There on, on, no, on God's green earth is no one going in and saying at a utility in July and August saying, but we're talking electric utilities. Yeah. We're not talking large tech companies whose motto is move fast and break things. We're talking electric utilities where it they've had 18 months of uncertainty. They now have to digest what it is. They now have to step back and say, okay, let's plan now what we know. That's, and, and by the way, a contract negotiation takes months. Absolutely. It, they're, they're going back and forth. So to the investor that freaked out because it didn't move right away, I'm sorry to say that's that's that that's they've got to get more in the weeds then. Absolutely, 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 absolutely. And I think you know, but you could say the same with the working group. You know, people sitting back and expecting something miraculous for the uranium well, industry from the well, working well, group. You shouldn't expect miracles when you're investing. There you go. I, that's that's I can't hold people's hands, right? Miracles don't 
right? It, what are you hoping for? If yeah. you understand, like we believe, and again, we could be wrong, that's what makes markets. Right. But what we believe is when price discovery in mass occurs and our signs are telling us Cameco's not signing contracts with a three handle, it's a four handle, other discussions are taking place, eventually the long-term price on a reported basis will move up. Right. Uh, then from that point, it, it, you're fine. If if you anticipated that 232 is gonna come and something's gonna happen like that overnight, it doesn't work that way. So I think we're in violent agreement. The macro story is good. The yep. fundamentals of the, the, the math is there. It, you know, in terms of that macro picture, supply demand picture. Um, there's been a few events which we've discussed today, 232, the working group. It's kind of, uh, my opinion of the working group is whatever. Uh, it'll be, you know, it'll be fine. Who it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not, it, it's good and gooder. What are they going to do? They're not going to go back and say, oh, by the way, yeah. well, the working group has no, what can they do? They right. can, they, can they, we're going to make it tougher for the U.S. The U.S. huge miners, yeah. they yeah. respect the global landscape. So th there's lots of things that will come out of that, which, which probably will affect uh, uranium positively globally, internationally. We'll see what it does, uh, you know, nationally. It doesn't change the amount, but Matt, yeah. whatever it does, doesn't change the amount of supply, primary and secondary, or demand. What's your What's your big message to investors in uranium? Some people have got hurt recently. Stay with yeah. it. From the time of inception of the fund, from the time of inception of analyzing it, the fundamentals for us have never been better. I mean, we it just you pinch yourself. What we ask ourselves is. And I, this is really important, and it doesn't mean anyone has to subscribe to this. This is how we subscribe to it. Mm. It's risk reward. So if if it means we're sitting on den money or up a little bit or down a little bit for a period of time, now nobody anticipated 232, but what you don't know with 232 was what was, was it going to be nine months or six months or five? You don't know how long mm. it was going to take. So you had to be in it to, to be there. Yeah. Uh, but But past that, it's, we, I come at this thesis, we come at this thesis at, at Sachem Cove from a, how does uranium go lower from here, right? That's how we think about the world and what gets it lower. And because if we take care of our downside, the upside takes care of itself. We don't come at it saying, uranium's going to the moon, it's going to 130, I have no idea. Where I think we believe that uranium has to go is well north 50, 55, 60, 65 in that range? Could it get to 80? And But what happens, Matt, and you know this from being around markets, and people also assume as soon as it gets to 40, contracts are signed like crazy. If I if I just saw, and I'm a, I'm a producer, and the price of uranium just moved 40% to get to that cost that I need it to be, I'm gonna step out of the market. I might sign a little bit, but I'm not gonna fill up my entire mine order book. Psychology, right? because now it becomes a seller's market, right? So it's now I'm the seller and I wanna be able to get my price. So, and then the fear takes over. The other thing you saw last cycle, and this is important for people to understand, you know, 03, I uh, went from, you know, uh, from oh, end of 02, so pricing went from 10 bucks to 137, right? Who knows, I does it get there? I have no idea. What I do know is what started to move it much higher was as you started to get into the 50s, 60s, 70s, you saw the hedge funds come in and buy a ton not a ton, not a technical ton, but by a lot. And they started storing the physical uranium. Mm. And then the global financial crisis came in, in 08 and people's funds melted down. Now, if I'm a hedge fund, that's not a uranium specialist and most weren't. 
and you're owning physical uranium and you're getting withdrawals of your fund, because even the good funds had withdrawals across the board, if that's what's happening, get me out of this. What is this? Get, well, call, call the analyst in and say, blow out my uranium. And then that brings it down. And then it settled around Fukushima right before about 73 bucks a pound. Mm. Now, by the way, if the physical price of a commodity moves from 25 to 55, 65, 70, 75, and it doubles or triples, just the gearing in the, in the equities, they're going to go up multiples of that. Um, and that's our view. So we subscribe to 100 timers that are out there. I see on Twitter, people, is 50 bagger, 100 bagger? I mean, come on. Do you think Cameco's um, call last week and the subsequent press release, was that a little bit of, you're talking about this, the psyche here, was that a little bit of gamesmanship? Absolutely. I, I, uh, we are, um, I like the guys there, like Tim, like Grant. Um, they're professional, they're, they're sharp guys. Um, you see a lot of criticism on Twitter or in, in different places uh, about the projects or and 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 whatever it might be. Um, uh, I think, sorry, my golden retriever is here wanting to be petted. So I, I, I have uh, seen the golden retriever make appearances behind she, you. <laughs> yeah, she's making appearances. Um, but uh, but I uh, I thought, it, and we've gone back and looked at conference calls years and years and years. And there are times where we get a little frustrated with them. Uh, because we think that they can exert more leverage than they do. And we think they're very polite, really professional. Um, and uh, sometimes you say, guys, shake the tree on the utilities because this is a big deal. And, um, and, and, and they, 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 they're very balanced. Yeah. Um, but this, this call was the most forceful I think they've seen them. Now, the market, it, again, not a lot of people really deeping, dive deep into this fuel cycle. When they're talking about surplus disposal in the spot market, they're calling out a couple of producers. But again, what does that mean? That doesn't mean surplus in the market. They're saying in the spot market, which is a tiny, it's a thinly traded market that is prone to people playing games with. When they're calling out financial people, games are played in that end of the market. Well, that's all I want to so, ask you about. If I don't, if you don't mind, just very briefly, it's obviously I think there's some coded messages there for different. People in the market. Absolutely. Obviously, Kazatomprom may have interpreted it one way. I think traders in, as you say, a very thinly traded space, they have the ability to affect pricing spot in the spot market uh, because they have a different model from everyone else, right? Sure. So, but there's the physical traders, and then there's hedge funds, right? So, if the market is so thin and so small. If you if you don't see the forest for the trees and you're thinking now a, a physical trader is going uh, to Cameco needs to come into the market. Let me go buy some pounds. Mm. Right. Cameco said we need to buy pounds. I'm going to go buy some pounds. Then I'm going to go to them and say, if you don't buy from us, we're going to sell it. And Cameco's mm. view is screw you. You're not going to dictate what I'm going to do. And we'll buy them when we need to buy them, but not on your schedule. And, and so message sent there. And so what happens, you see in March, you know, you see the price of uranium go from, I don't know, 23, 24, it goes up to 29. Cameco's got to come in and buy. Uh, it's a Japanese year end. And if people are familiar with the uranium trading market, there are Japanese traders that are big in this market. And it's a year end. They don't want to be stuck with inventory on the balance sheet at year end. And they can easily go to Cameco and say, we're out. If you don't buy it from us, Cameco, like, so what? And because Cameco's not managing business for tomorrow, and they're not going to be held hostage by people. So message sent. Um, do they, right? So 
they're looking out a few years. They're looking out. They have their own supply demand numbers. You've got, they have to. They, they're not looking at industry experts, consultants, they, 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 where the market is. Um, they're, they're messaging um, other bigger producers. And they're not going to give their strategy on a conference call that helps them in planning a strategy sessions. Um, so they have different constituents they're talking to. Well, but, and investors, right? And investors, of course, investors, it's an earnings call. And like, right, so you're bound, it's a very tough balancing act. Uh, but but from our perspective, it was the best call. And I actually, I sent them an email uh, and, and I said, listen, from my perspective, um, and, and we do own a little bit of Cameco. So, but, but I, and I always say this, if you think we own something, it could be a 1% position or a 10 or two, it does, I don't say that. And I always say, don't buy it because we own it. Um, but I, I sent a, um, a, uh, an email saying, you know, I, I thought you guys were very um, forceful uh, on the call. I, at least from this investor's perspective, I think I understood what you guys were, were saying. Um, so, you know, uh, but, but that gets interpreted the, the spot surplus. Now, if you don't live in the nuclear fuel market and you hear that, you might think, oh my gosh, there's excess, it's flooded. It couldn't be from our view. And again, we could be wrong, couldn't be further from the truth. No, I, th I, thought, I thought it was fascinating. And, and again, it, different people will read different things into it. And, and, and from what I've seen online, they have. Um, yeah. But I'm looking forward to the next six months. And this industry, I think more than any I've ever seen, and I've analyzed a lot of industries during bear markets and during bull markets, but during bear markets, I all these management teams do is beat up each other's projects. All they do is talk shit about everyone else's projects. They don't, and, and if they spend more time focusing on the macro uranium than they do, whose project is better, why? Because they're all looking to raise capital, yeah. but if, uh, or position themselves to, and, and they're gonna, most of them are gonna wake up one day and go, Oh, we didn't need to do that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because we've spoken to a bunch of different uh, companies um, on video, off, off video. And, you know, some of them are struggling with a little bit for cash and having to raise money. And it's expensive money right now, okay? Um, because their shares are where they are and the market mm -hmm. is where they are. And they're giving out warrants and all, all of that good stuff, right? And no, no surprise, really. And then there's some companies who are, you know, quite close. They've, quite close to um, doing everything that they can do. They've spent their money and they just need to hang on in there until the, till the, till the market turns. Um, so they've all got slightly different drivers going on. You know, again, no, it's, it's not rocket science. But what, what I thought was interesting was that the companies which are quite close to you know, putting the numbers together, they're gonna have, they're gonna have to work out you know, at what point do they and to try and enter the market. At what point do you come in? Do you take that cash? Because you can go to the banks and take the cash today if you can find someone to give you give you the, the mostly debt, I'm guessing. Um, or you wait a little bit and you wait for that, as you say, that price discovery to determine is now the moment because it's best for my investors and my shareholders. I mean, I, I can't imagine you know, what they're I going think, through uh, at the moment. I think, and I, I think a good number, maybe that's the phrase I'll use, a good number are headline readers too when it comes to the macro uranium. And they don't themselves know. And I think you're that right. to, to me and team 
has been one of the biggest eye openers. Some do, some do. Uh, some really endeavor to understand the macro market, but many are just reading headline stuff and what consensus stuff is mm. and making decisions off of that. And that, go, that goes into our calculus of whether or not we want to be a part of something like that. Now, will we sometimes, and, and do it much less now, but early on, did we finance a few through some pipes, you know, private investment, public equities, we get a five-year warrant and, and uh, we give a little bit of cash uh, for a project we thought was okay, maybe not great, but we thought had potential. It's a sliver of our fund. And so, yeah, okay, because if the warrants work, it's, it's okay, but it's a very, very small portion of what we do. Right. Um, but the more you spend time here, the, the more you realize you need to be very selective and understand what these management teams know about not only their projects, what, but what, what, when they need to go to market. This, this is what I was getting at with these investment hacks. You know, what are the things that, you know, you know, what, what are the buttons they need to press to kind of get you to go? Yes. Cause like pipes, if, if someone's, if someone's willing to take a pipe investment, I'm slightly nervous about the project, you know, in, in my day. You know, they've got limited options or less options, right? Um, but, you know, the, the ones that you are willing to invest in, it says a lot about the company to me, for sure. But, Mike, but there, you know, there are, I mean, we'll do a little um, and you get a warrant. You build a little bit of a warrant bank. Mm. Um, that if, if the work is right and the cycle turns, some of these things have goofy returns. You say, okay, mm. but that's... A very small portion. Oh yeah, but from your side, it's absolutely worth it. But I like I say, from the from the company's perspective, yeah. that's that's a different different story. Um, but but, but I, you know, the one thing that you you know you said you're doing this for the retail investor. I, yeah. I I see a lot of commentary on Twitter, and a lot of people are very passionate, and they have some <laughs> yeah. really educated ones. And um, you know, but when and I I don't know, I don't I, I speak to a couple of them offline. Mm. Um, but you get the sense that it's bet the ranch mentality on things, and this is you know, happens overnight and, and to the moon. And, you know, these are long cycles. They, it, it, you have ups and downs, right. And, um, and people get impatient. And like you said, it's personal, it's their money, but, but spread it out a little. Yeah. yeah. And we don't spread out too much, but one or two companies, you know, I always say this, I, I, I half joke. Um, even if you love the greatest in the world and I thought it, it had 10 bag potential, uh, is it going to be half my fund? No. Why? Because I don't know if the CEO is sleeping with the, with the, with the secretary and the, you're going to wake up one day and the stock's down 50% and shit like that happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, oh, no, I know, I know, I know. It does. It does. You know, the accounting is, is you do the best you can, but you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. So you just, um, you know, you got to put some risk management in there. I totally agree with that. Mike, great place to end. Thank you for your time. Uh, welcome back from holiday. Earlier, I look like I got a little tan. I try not to. I, I throw on the 50 SFP, whatever they call it. Uh, but uh, the, once in a while, a little bit of sun at the beach. You're, you're a reluctant beach guy, right? I am a very, I am a winter guy. I am a, put me in hockey equipment and on skates, and that's my thing. Well, there you go. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. We look forward to speaking yeah, to you again. You. Um, yeah, I'll be in London in September for the WNA. So see you there, yeah. sir. I'll see you for a pint of Guinness. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.